Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Blacklist, where I, your host, Mariah, discuss the beginnings, lives, and legacies of Black Hollywood stars who are often forgotten, a footnote, or left out of the narrative of Hollywood's beginnings entirely. This new season was inspired by the mini summer series, and particularly the final two episodes on the films by the prolific African-American filmmaker Oscar Michaud. I was inspired by his tenacity and his ability to make the kind of films he wanted against all odds. And I figured, where there's smoke, there's fire. I was right. Last season, we talked about the lives of six black women pioneers on screen. This season, we're exploring the lives of black pioneers off screen. I'm talking about the rise and the fall of the black independent film movement of the early 1900s. This week, we are going to discuss the birth of a nation. So, here we go. The time will come when children in public schools will be taught practically everything by moving pictures. D.W. Griffith, 1915. Famous last words. Probably the wrong choice of words. Or the wrong speaker. Yeah, I think it's the wrong speaker. D.W. Griffith was an American filmmaker from Oldham County, Kentucky. He made the 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation. I didn't qualify it with any accolades it won or records it broke because this film, no matter how innovative his film and cinematography techniques were, is one of the most racist and dangerous films of all time, if it is not number one on that list. This is considered to be one of the first feature films ever made. This film is an adaption of Thomas Dixon Jr.'s 1905 novel, The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan. The pair met because Dixon wanted to turn the book into a film, you know, spread the hate a little wider, and he met Griffith through a producer. They bonded over their mutual hate of the Reconstruction era and what it did to their beloved, racist, South. Griffith read the novel and was inspired by the moment where the Klansmen ride to rescue the persecuted white Southerners, believing that he could turn this story into a cinematic masterpiece. It cost over $2 million to make, convert it to $2,019. And for over 20 years, until Gone with the Wind, in 1939, another film romanticizing the Civil War and the Reconstruction era and victimizing white people, The Birth of a Nation was the highest grossing film of all time. This film is three hours and 13 minutes long. I had to watch all of it. So now I will tell you what I saw with my own eyes in details so you can get an accurate enough picture of just how awful this film is and so you never have to watch it for yourself. I'm going to be completely subjective in my discussion and I do not care. However, before I start, I just have to read some of the YouTube comments underneath it. Yes, I watched it on YouTube. I would advise you to never watch it, but here goes. Number one, Trump's favorite movie. Accurate, though I don't think he can read, so intertitles would be lost on him. I also don't think he's intelligent enough to follow even the most basic plot of a silent movie. But moving on. This movie is an absolute masterpiece. It is also horrendously racist. It is possible to be both. Okay, sounds very white, but okay. The next one. Three hours long? Guess they didn't have a handle on editing yet. And you know what? You're fucking right. Because as a person who has watched this movie, it's too damn long. And my personal favorite, still not better than Black Panther. (laughs) 
big facts only. They don't have Lupita or Deny. They don't have spaceships. And they don't have a soundtrack written by the Pulitzer Prize winning Kendrick Lamar. But now that our fun is over, let's dive right into the bullshit. I'm going to say it one more time. This movie is three fucking hours long. Don't get me wrong. I love a long film, but damn, how racist can you get? Well, I'll tell you. So, one of the first intertitles reads that this film is produced exclusively by D.W. Griffith and that his initials, D.G., are to be on every single intertitle. I guess he really wanted to stand by this garbage and forever be associated with it. Well, mission accomplished. The next intertitle is interesting. It reads, A plea for the art of motion pictures. He warns that they, they being his production team, do not fear censorship for we have no wish to offend with improprieties or obscenities, but we do demand as a right the liberty to show the dark side of wrong, that we may illuminate the bright side of virtue. Notice the language he's using, dark and wrong, illuminate, bright, and virtue. He continues, the same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word, that art to which we owe the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. Get over yourself, D.W. Griffith. The next intertitle says, if in this work we have conveyed to the mind the ravages of war to the end that war may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not have been in vain. It continues, the bringing of Africans to America first planted the seed of disunion. Okay, so who's to blame for that then? But then we cut to black men shirtless, wearing nothing, being surrounded and ogled by white men, presumably being prepared to be auctioned off. They walk, chained and slumped as these Puritans try to change them. Then we move to the abolitionists in a church preaching about freeing the slaves as a young black boy who looks very malnourished, wrapped in a blanket of some sort, is paraded in front of all the white congregation. This is the America that we live in at the start of the film. Then we are taken to the apartment of parliamentary leader Austin Stoneman, a rising leader in the National House of Representatives. He and his young daughter, Elsie, played by Lillian Gish, dressed in a flowing huge gown, dotes on her father who is wearing the worst wig you have ever seen. After this, Elsie travels to the Stoneman, Pennsylvania country home where her brothers, Phil and Todd Stoneman, are relaxing. Her brothers are dressed like John Mulaney in that one episode of Difficult People where he plays an old-timey Nazi sympathizer, and they are planning a trip to Piedmont, South Carolina to visit their friends, the Camerons. All is well and beautiful. Lillian Gish is wearing a bonnet that's gone with the wind level fabulous. Then we cut to the Cameron's home in Piedmont, South Carolina, where life runs in a quaint way that is to be no more. Aw, poor slave owners. The town looks quaint. The music is soft and simple to represent the South, I guess. And then out of nowhere, there's a scene where like a carriage carrying tons of black people just drops one of the kids onto the ground, attracting the attention of all of the surrounding townsfolk. And then the kid gets spanked to get back onto the cart by an elderly black man and everyone watches in disgust. And this is where we are introduced to Benjamin Cameron and his younger sister, Margaret Cameron. The Camerons have old Southern racist money because their home has two staircases, and they all dress in lace and all the frills of extravagant wealth. 
Something that makes no sense to me is the use of both actual black people and white people in blackface to play black extras and the help. And even the slaves are made up of a mixture of white people in blackface and actual black actors. I mean, I get why they wouldn't want to give a black actor the opportunity to play a lead role because they suck. But this confuses me. They have little pickaninnies running around playing with the young white children, and the mammy of the family is clearly a white woman whose blackface makeup is sweating off throughout the course of the film. But continuing, Margaret brings Ben a letter from Phil and Todd Stoneman, the Northerners, and later they arrive to a very warm Southern welcome. The cameramen show the Stonemans around the property, you know, cotton fields with slaves working in the hot sun, the river behind their home, etc., etc., etc. While on a stroll, Phil Stoneman falls in love with Margaret, but this looks arranged as fuck because I'm going to be honest, Margaret has more romantic chemistry with her brother Ben. But they walk merrily through the fields, the black slaves a mere backdrop to their bullshit, until they all travel to the slave quarters, while the slaves are on their two-hour break and a 12-hour workday that, honestly, I'm certain was probably longer than that. And they make the slaves dance to entertain the Stoneman brothers, who seem less than amused by this display. Meanwhile, Ben has somehow gotten a picture of Elsie Stoneman and has fallen in love with her. I don't know when or how we jump to this point from a narrative standpoint or why Elsie did not go to Piedmont or why Ben fell in love with her, but now he keeps the picture in his wallet at all times. So then we jump forward in time to 1781. The Cameron family reads the newspaper that the South wants to secede from the Union, and while on a visit to the Camerons, the Stoneman brothers assure them that no matter what happens, there will be no bad blood between the two families. Even though their father is an abolitionist and leader of the house, and yet somehow they're all friends, if that ain't the whitest thing I have ever heard, I don't know what is. Back in Washington, however, things are different. Austin Stoneman is meeting with Charles Sumner, who is titled the Master of Congress, which I can only assume means Speaker of the House. Side note, these white men look like James Charles Pale, and they are wearing the stiffest wigs that you have ever seen. And Austin Stoneman keeps pulling his wig up to wipe his head. And yeah. Anyway, while Sumner and Stoneman argue fervently about the Southern problem, a woman who is described as the mulatto listens from the next room. This woman is played by a white woman with just a little bit less blackface makeup on than the other blackface actors, so of course she treats the darker-skinned slaves with less respect. But while she listens to the conversation in the next room, she kind of loses her shit and gets out of place with the master of Congress who immediately reminds her that she's still a nigga. But then he leaves and she spits and slams doors and licks herself and screams and rips her clothes off for some reason that's still unclear to me. She cries hoping to be noticed and kind of does what Mark Wahlberg did in fear and roughs herself up just as Austin Stoneman comes out to comfort her. She smiles evilly while he holds her in his arms. I... I really don't know what this has to do with the plot, but I could not say anything because it went on for way too long. Anyway, it's wartime. They couldn't make things work out. Phil Stoneman cannot get Margaret to marry him because she is simply not into his ugly ass. President Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation while a bunch of angry looking white men watch. And at this point, the racism is there. You know, the mammies, the pickaninnies, shoeless, shirtless black men running the streets, acting like bumbling fools. But it's not so bad that it would cause contention even within the white community. 
not yet at least. So we jump to the actual war. Both the Cameron boys and the Stoneman boys leave excited to fight for their side, while the distraught families watch them leave. Once the war is underway, the Piedmont people throw a ball after one victorious battle, and maybe this is why they lost. They spend too much time doing shit like this. They throw a bonfire in the streets and a ball inside, and these people celebrate until the sun comes up, literally. The ball is elegant, but I don't understand why spend so much of the film focusing on it. Like, so much time. We get it. You're very proud of your victory, but the war isn't won yet. This is where they unveil that goddamn Confederate flag and toast to it until the troops literally have to leave for battle again. The Southern troops leave excitedly to go fight for racism and slavery. Men are stealing hugs and kisses. They look so happy and full of life. Little do they know, they're marching to their deaths. While the women cry in a banner saying, conquer we must for our cause is just, hangs in the Cameron household. Though at the beginning of the film, D.W. Griffith essentially says that his only allegiance is to the truth, the most sympathetic images are painted of Southern soldiers and their families. The South gets the most screen time and the most nuanced storytelling from this lion-ass white man. So much detail and empathy for the losing team. But then we jump forward in time again, two and a half years to be exact. Ben Cameron, now called the Little Colonel for his success in battle, gets a letter from his big sis saying she misses him. Meanwhile, the Cameron family tries to live life as normally as possible, thinking things will go back to the way they were after the war is over. But then, an irregular northern guerrilla force takes over the town, just as the Cameron ladies were going out for an afternoon stroll. People are running and scrambling in the streets, and the Cameron girls are locked out of the house as the troops come in droves, shooting and killing people in the streets. And guess who the guerrilla force is made up of? Negro soldiers. Wearing their uniforms off the shoulders, some of them shoeless, and they pillage the village as the title card says, the scallywag white captain influences the Negro militia to follow his orders. They break into the Cameron household where the women have barricaded themselves in a far off room as the soldiers tear the house apart. But why this house specifically? I mean, what are they searching for? Who knows? It's never explained. They shoot poor, innocent white people and steal the Cameron stuff, finally making their way into a room where the girls are hitting to no avail. Just as the Confederate militia learns of the raid, storms the house in numbers much larger than the Northerners, and the title card says, Confederates to the rescue. But the guerrilla force does set the house on fire, and it's like really smoky inside. The women have no idea what's going on, but they're trapped in the old faithful slaves Foolishly try to put out the fire with buckets of water before they're rescued by kind old Confederates. Yay, Confederates! Meanwhile, the little colonel, Ben, is still fawning over the picture of Elsie. The next inner title essentially reads, And meanwhile, the war claims its bitter, useless sacrifice, underlined and in all caps. Listen to the language of this film. It's so incredibly obviously racist. Meanwhile, On the battlefield, the Confederates suffer embarrassing and bitter losses that we're supposed to mourn because of how much screen time they're given, but I'm here to say that I don't give a fuck. 
The youngest Cameron boy has died, and the mother is in complete and utter shock. And of course, she faints very dramatically as everyone, northern and southern, reads the war sad pages, and they're all sad and very poor. People are now selling their dearest possessions, and the Camerons have fallen from grace. They look destitute, almost middle class. But the girls try to entertain themselves in their dusty rags. While Elsie, on the other hand, still looks amazing and goes to join the cause. She goes off to become a military nurse. Meanwhile, in the South, the women and children are weeping and sleeping outside in the cold. They're poor and they're sad because the Northerners have captured Atlanta and surrounding states. The Southerners are crippled beyond belief. Then another Cameron son dies. It's sad. Then, the sorely needed food train for the Confederates is misled and it goes to the Union instead, so none of these dumbasses don't even have food. But have no fear, because General Lee is here. He orders an attempt to save the food. Triumphant music plays as Confederates plan the attack, and guess who's leading the attack? The little Colonel, Ben Cameron himself. But here's the thing. They lose. Like, badly. Like, really badly. The Union men are storming the Confederate ranks and stabbing them with bayonets and beating them and shooting them close range. It is actually very graphic, and it is hard to believe that anyone approved of this. But whatever. The North is victorious, and the Cameron family is angry as fuck about everything. Somehow, Ben Cameron ends up in a Union hospital where Elsie also happens to be working. She walks around playing the banjo for these already suffering men. But whatever. Then she walks over to Ben as he notices through an angle that looks exactly like the picture in his wallet that this is the woman he is in love with. He has carried her with him for a long time. He says to Elsie, just as his mother attempts to visit her only surviving son and they discover that he has actually acted as a gorilla during the war and now Ben Cameron is to be hanged. Distraught over this, Mother Cameron and Elsie, for some reason, travel to the president's office because he's apparently just meeting with random citizens. They plead for Ben Cameron's life, and she has granted a pardon for him. Hooray! He has his life back. You would think the movie would be over, right? Wrong. We still have two more hours of film to discuss. So... Back in Piedmont, everyone is poor, and they seem to be living in a situation much worse than before because they look rough. This is happening just as General Lee's bum ass signs the state of sovereignty, and yay, we're one country, now and forever. This has been United States History with Mariah. Colonel Cameron gets discharged from the hospital, and he and Elsie don't exactly hit it off the way he'd hoped, but as he arrives home, the Camerons have prepared the saddest ceremony for him, which they inaccurately call a feast. Margaret just prepares a plate of beans and sold some old-ass cotton onto her dusty-ass dress, which Ben pulls off in disgust of how far from grace his family has fallen. Boo-hoo. Back in Washington, some of the leaders are trying to convince good old Abe to hang the Southern leaders. But Abe's like, no, we'll treat them as if they never left. But this was our fucking chance to get rid of Florida and their stupid ass 29 electoral votes. Abe really fumbled the bag. No shade. Shout out to Miami. But back to the movie. Now the South is trying to rebuild itself after they are the ones who put themselves in harm's way. And the Cameron house becomes a boarding home. Peace, love, happiness, blah, 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 blah. Until the fated night of April 14th, 1865. A performance to celebrate Lee's surrender, attended by the president and his staff. The Stonemans actually perform. 
Lillian looks sickening with an off-the-shoulders lace dress and a beads number. It's it's really wonderful. The play is amazing. Mary Todd is wearing a bonnet number on her head, and I am actually living for it. Everyone cheers and gives a standing ovation for President Lincoln. As the show progresses, the president's bodyguard just wanted to watch the play. So we left this post for just a minute to get a view of the play, not part of his job, and enter John Wilkes Booth who shoots the president close range while everyone is distracted and because no one is actually guarding the door. Then John jumps off the balcony onto the stage and into the audience and escapes and the whole theater goes into a frenzy. People jumping on the stage, running around, grabbing props and American flags and shit. All of Stoneman's men rudely run to his house and rush past the black butler for some reason to tell Austin Stoneman that he is now the greatest power in the United States. Cameron reads about it in a newspaper, and suddenly everything changes. End of part one. Now, on to the second part, with the greatest amount of historical negationism that I have ever consumed in one sitting. D.W. Griffith's interpretation of the Reconstruction Era. The first intertitle reads, The agony which the South endured that a nation might be born, the blight of war, does not end when hostilities cease. The next one reads, as it continues, this is a historical presentation of the Civil War and Reconstruction period and is not meant to reflect on any race or people of today. (sighs) Then the next intertitle is from President Woodrow Wilson's History of the American People speech, where he says adventurers swarmed out of the North as much as enemies of one race as the other to beguile and use the Negroes in the villages. The Negroes were once office holders, men who knew nothing of uses of authority except its insolences. The policy of congressional leaders wrought a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South in the determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country. This is coming from the president of the whole country, I'll remind you. But D.W. Griffith is also biased. So here we go again. Part two. Now, we return to Washington to the Capitol where we meet Silas Lynch, a protege of Stoneman. He is played by a white actor in blackface. Lynch enters Stoneman's office and goes to kiss the hand of Stoneman when Stoneman says, don't scrape to me, you are an equal here. He then declares equality for blacks throughout all the land. However, Senator Sumner is big mad and is worried that all this power given to the now freed race, he urges them to pull back because of its dangers. Stoneman refuses to back off, saying Silas Lynch is a peer of any white man. The name Lynch is quite interesting, but anyway. Silas Lynch travels to the South to aid carpetbaggers and to help the Negro vote in the South. But as he leaves, he notices Elsie innocently arranging flowers and gets this real evil lusty look in his eye. It's gross and it will come up again later. Lynch travels to the South and makes Piedmont his headquarters. He and his staff go around literally trying to pry the tools from the hands of Negroes and pull them away from cotton fields to almost no avail. But some of the people aren't even giving convincing performances and it's kind of hilarious. They're just waving the hoe up and down on camera. What kind of amateur shit is that? 
Then we get to the Freedmen's Bureau, where blacks get supplies and are so happy to receive it that they bravely quit their jobs and walk with a new sense of power. Ben Cameron is shook by this new world order, and Silas Lynch tells Ben that he has to share the sidewalk with Negroes now. And that boils Ben's blood. Then Stoneman, who's old and destitute at this point, is advised by his doctor to travel south for his health. So, of course, he goes to Piedmont, where they are all greeted by the Camerons. And for some reason, entirely unknown to me, they still have a mammy, even though I just know they ain't paying her now. It's clear that she's one of those loyal slaves, I guess. Mammy is rude to the Stoneman's black butler. Both characters are played by white actors in blackface. And this is where the real hatred for Northerner shows up. She refuses to carry the bag upstairs for the black butler, saying, You old northern low-down black trash, don't try no airs on me. Then she kicks him and pushes him. The northern guy seems very rightfully confused, because what the fuck did he do? Later, the Stonemans and the Camerons start bitching about how the free niggers from the north are crazy when Silas Lynch approaches to woo Elsie, even as she is being wooed by Ben Cameron. Elsie is uneased by Lynch's constant wooing of her, and Ben Cameron refuses to shake Silas's hand and literally turns away from him like a little bitch baby. If you're so mad, maybe you shouldn't have lost the war, bitch. Then, D.W. really lets his Southern racism show, because it is now revealed that Silas Lynch is secretly a traitor to the kind white people, and he plans to build the throne of vaulting power through lying and stealing and cheating. You know, all those black stereotypes that have been around for centuries. But how could he have done any of that? And if he did, who would he have learned it from if not his mentor, a white man? But let's continue. The Southern Union League holds an impassioned rally for voters' rights and equality and all that jazz in a small, discreet location. And this is a room full of actual black people. And it's like one of the first times in the film that it's played by actual black people. I would also like to say that as this movie goes on, Lynch's makeup looks less and less black. They make it seem as if blacks wanting franchise and wanting voting rights is some insane northern ideal that black people aren't prepared for which is bullshit meanwhile there's still this romance this forced romance between ben and elsie and lynch happens upon them and watches from afar completely heartbroken ben brings elsie a damn bird as a love token and she kisses this diseased ass bird that he found in the park on the mouth for several seconds and then this bitch keeps the bird Meanwhile, the people of the South have not forgotten about the way their own mistakes and bullshit backfired on them. However, the language that D.W. Griffiths used is like, the heart of the South was wounded, and blah blah blah. They flash back to the Cameron brothers being killed in war, for their, and the North and the South battle it out for their own egos. I'm gonna be completely honest, the Cameron family dynamic is weird to me, and I think these white people are fucking. But then we move to election day. The first time black men get to vote in a Southern election, a monumental affair if there ever was one. But these men are made to do shady shit, like sneak votes into ballot boxes and the poor white people's votes are ignored. Then the Negroes and the carpetbaggers sweep the state and this is made to look like the worst possible outcome for a Southern town filled with now freed blacks who should have representatives. I mean, are you kidding me? However these southern whites feel, the niggas and the northerners are thrilled, and they march to the streets celebrating, shooting the shit, and for some reason, Lynch sees this as his opportunity to strike and finally seduce Elsie. 
Meanwhile, in the dusty-ass Cameron house, Ben is telling his family of all the horrible things that have happened, like a Negro magistrate and a Negro jury ruling against whites for no reason, and the blacks are in the courtroom in a flashback scene, stealing even on the stand, and meanwhile, the poor whites are forced out for not voting with the Union League, and they walk into the streets, their hands full of their belongings, and for the faithful Southern Negroes who refuse to vote in the interest of their people, they are tied to trees and beaten. It's madness, and the Camerons don't know what to do. And then there's this whole scene where the family, like, brings a beaten black man into the Cameron house to help him, as if they would have ever actually done that. But whatever. So finally, we're at the first state house meeting in Piedmont. The Negroes are in control with 101 blacks against 23 whites. They depict these blacks eating and joking and drinking alcohol during session, unable to focus. They take off their shoes and eat fried chicken. It's so disgusting how they're painted. Then the congressional Negroes make a rule that all Southern whites must salute the black people in the streets and the helpless white minority, boo, fucking who. Then they pass a bill so blacks and whites can intermarry. And there's a horrid scene where a bunch of black men stare into the white gallery, lusting after all the white women. And then everyone cheats and riots and the state house turns into a party. My jaw is literally on the floor. I do not understand why I'm so shocked by this terrible racism. And yet here I am, utterly shocked and disgusted. We ain't even finished yet. Something called the Grim Reaping begins. Ben Cameron sits near a river, contemplating his life. But I need you to listen to this next part closely. Do you hear me? Closely. Because it will be important later. So, as Ben sits on the riverbank, he sees two dusty-ass white children with a white bedsheet and wonders what the fuck they could be doing with that sheet. As did I. The children then hide themselves under the white sheet and sit on the riverbank. Ben watches, still confused. As am I. The children sit quietly as a group of black children wander by. The curious black children stand and wonder what the fuck could be under this random white sheet. And then the white children scare the black kids off. And this is how Ben came up with the idea for the KKK. You heard me correctly. From children. The next intertitle says, The Result. The Ku Klux Klan, the organization that saved the South from the anarchy of black rule, but not without the shedding of more blood than at Gettysburg. I am out of carrots. I am out of sticks. Next, you have the terrifying white hood wearing KKK burning down barns and scaring the shit out of unsuspecting black people. And even the horses have white hoods, which is fitting because I personally believe that horses are evil, but that's another story for another day. Now, there's a war between Lynch and his men and the KKK led by one Ben Cameron. And Lynch tells Stoneman of the travesty that's occurring, and Stoneman says, we shall crush the white South under the heel of the black South. This is clearly the writing of a white person who has never had a meaningful conversation with a black person. No, actually, this is the writing and the creation of a white person who has never spoken to a black person. Elsie's father tells her that Ben is a member of the KKK, which he rightfully calls a murderous band of outlaws, and she breaks off the engagement to Ben. They get engaged at some point. I don't remember. There's a lot of shit going on, and I hope she gave him that dirty-ass bird back. But anyway, later, 
400,000 KKK costumes have been made by the women of the South as they all excitedly prepare for battle against the black people. The delight in the whimsy with which these white women behave proves one thing to me. They have never been as innocent as they are painted to be. As Margaret leaves her home to go to a Klan rally, she is followed by a black man, Gus, that watched her very closely days prior as she picks flowers for the KKK and chases squirrels. I'll add, before I continue, that this black man is played by a white man in blackface. The family discovers that Margaret has gone and not returned home, and people are gravely concerned. So Ben goes searching for her, and that's when this black and white man says that he wants to marry her, and she looks scared and tries to get away from him, and she hits him to get away, and she runs and screams, and no one hears her because he's chasing her through the woods. And Ben is trailing behind them, following the clues that she's dropped and left behind. And this white man dressed as a black man, eyes bulging, mouth frothing, chases this woman, and Ben shouts searching for her, and she runs until she reaches the edge of a cliff and tells him that she'll jump if he doesn't stay away. And he doesn't stay away, so she jumps. And Ben sees Gus running away, assuming that he did this to her. She mumbles to Ben in agony, and they sit, the wind blowing in their hair as she dies in Ben's arms. He becomes enraged and carries her dead body home. Back at the Stoneman house, his sons are actually turning against the radical policy of equality because of the trouble it's causing. Later, Ben takes his white KKK gear and leaves his home in a frenzy, and the white black man, Gus, has the nerve to go and beg all these innocent black people for help. Meanwhile, Ben is going around town recruiting a search party to kill him, and he's hiding in a local hangout, and not very well, I'll add. A concerned white man goes into the local nigger hangout in search of Gus and gets into a literal fight with all of the black men. And at one point, he throws one of the men against the rest of the men and somehow is able to fight off at least five different men, all while trashing the fucking hangout. This fight goes on for like a lot longer than is necessary, but he does find Gus. However, you should never turn your back on men you have wronged because then this concerned white man gets shot and killed and Gus gets away on a horse that I'm going to assume is a KKK horse. So now they think he's done two murders in one day when really this guy just has horrible luck. Like the guy who was in Japan when both the A-bombs dropped. But Gus doesn't hide very well because the KKK finds him and they have a trial and the KKK of course finds him guilty and they kill him. They leave his body on the steps of the carpetbaggers headquarters who are furious. Where's the kind of Southern hospitality? So Lynch orders the Negroes to start an uprising. Oh my word, y'all, this movie is so much longer than need be. Meanwhile, the Klan is doing some white ritual to prepare for battle, praying to their evil flag, and it's actually really, really creepy. They deliver a summons to disarm all blacks so that they can't prepare for battle, but Lynch has given his men the order to kill anyone wearing a KKK uniform. So of course, the KKK hides in literal ditches to surprise the black soldiers who are all searching over town for hidden KKK members when they happen to see a uniform poorly hidden in the Cameron household. And the white scalawag captain arrests the Cameron father with his old ass and he tries to fight them off but they win and arrest him and the ladies of the Cameron household plead with Elsie to have their father released but fuck that old white man. 
Now he's paraded before his former slaves and they rightfully spit on him and ridicule him. And the family tries to stop this and the mammy tries to fight the soldiers off and comically uses her weight to smother the soldiers and the Cameron family actually escapes after Elsie's brother slays a Negro. Ooh, there is a lot going on. Somehow, at some point, Elsie's brother turns against the North and the white people bond over their Aryan right. And Elsie sees this and concurs that all these white people have lost their mind. So she goes to Lynch for his help. And of course, he makes a move on her, which she is not into. And she says that she will have him whipped. But he responds by showing the display of the battle outside. And oh my God, the next intertitle reads, see, my people fill the streets. With them, I will build a black empire. And you as my queen shall sit by my side. Again, this movie feels like it was written by someone who has never in their life met a black person. Elsie dramatically, and I do mean dramatically, tries to escape this creepy ass man after he does many inappropriate things, but he forces his henchmen to prepare an arranged marriage. Elsie is distraught and also powerless, but who comes to her rescue traveling through rivers and ditches and shit but the clan, looking heroic, gathering to storm the town and take back their Aryan life. Anyway, Stoneman waits outside the door, and no one tells him that inside, Lynch has his daughter captured, and the KKK prepares to storm the city. I don't know how he didn't know that any of this was going on, but whatever. While Lynch talks about his desire to marry a white woman, as if that is what all black people think, I'm furious, furious, as Lynch tells Stoneman of his desires to marry his daughter, and for some reason, I wonder why Stoneman doesn't like that. Meanwhile, the clan is riding into town. Deep. Elsie tries to escape one more time, and actually, she breaks a window, and the white spies go and tell of her capture. Now, So now there's like a legitimate reason for them to storm the headquarters to save Elsie, who was bound and gagged, who actually is being held against her will. They call the KKK sympathizers victims of black mobs. But the KKK rolls in deep, and I mean deep, and they run the black people out of town. And Lynch, fearing losing his prized Elsie, snatches her and tries to run out of town, but the KKK saves her. And literally, who is it? It's Ben Cameron in a mask to the rescue. They really play up the evil black nonsense. I mean, these scenes go on forever, I'm telling you. So, the KKK saves the day is the moral of this disgusting movie. They run the blacks out of town, and people cheer for them in the streets, throwing a parade in their honor. And the next election is guarded over by KKK, so black people can't vote. Sound familiar? And the film ends with the white couples happy, I guess. It makes me uneasy to even say that. The end. I have never been so relieved to stop talking about a film. The way they made this film... There's no way to see anything from both sides, even though they say that that was their intention. However, this film is based on lies and racism. But everything I've told you isn't even the worst part of this entire cinematic venture. You want to know what the worst part is? You'll have to wait until next week to find out. Until then. <laughs>